title. The title of the message is a powerful title, right? Inspiring. The table, the lampstand, and incense. You are just so excited about that, I'm sure. It's in the context of a sermon series on the tabernacle, and uh, Scott has assigned me this. Now I know why he went out of town, so I can handle this. And, and uh, it's part of this sermon series on the tabernacle. And uh, I want to uh, just right away read some scriptures that have to do with the instruction about about these two pieces of furniture that were in the tabernacle. I'd like to start with Exodus chapter 25, the verses 23 and following, and uh, just jump right in about the table. Make a table of acacia wood. That's the kind of wood that grew in the desert out there. Two cubits long, a cu- uh, in other words, about uh, a yard, right? long, a cubit high, and a cubit and a half uh, wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Also make around it a rim, a hand breadth wide, and put a gold molding on the rim. Make four gold rings for the table and fasten them to the four corners where the four legs are. The rings are to be close to the rim to hold the poles used in carrying the table. Make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, carry the table with them, and make its plates and dishes of pure gold, as well as its pictures, 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 and bowls for the pouring out of offerings. Put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. Make a lampstand of pure gold and hammer it out base and shaft. Its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms will be of one piece with it. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. Three cups shaped like, do I say almond or almond flowers? Almond flowers with buds and blossoms to be on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. And on the lampstand there are to be four cups shaped like Almond flowers with buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand. A second bud under the second pair. A third bud under the third pair. Six branches in all. The buds and branches shall all be of one piece with the lampstand. Hammered out of pure gold. Then make it seven lamps and set them up on it so that they may light the space in front of it. Its wick trimmers and trays are to be of pure gold. A talent of pure gold is to be used for the lampstand and all these accessories. See that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now, to 30, chapter 30. Make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. It is to be a square, it's to be square, a a cubit long, a cubit wide, and two cubits high, its horns of one piece with it. Overlay the top and all the sides and the horns with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Make two gold rings for the altar uh, below the molding, two on opposite sides to hold the poles used to carry it. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Put the altar in front of the curtain that is before the Ark of the Testimony. Before the atonement cover that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron will burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. 
It must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight, so incense will burn regularly before the Lord for the generations to come. Do not offer on this altar any other incense or any burnt offering or grain offering, and do not pour a drink offering on it. Once a year, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for the generations to come. It is to be most holy to the Lord. And then finally, verse 34, in the same chapter, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take fragrant spices, gum, resins, anacha, and galbanum, and pure incense, a frankincense, all in equal amounts, and make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. It is to be salted and pure and sacred. Grind some of it to powder and place it on the front of the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. Do not make any incense with this formula for yourselves. Consider it holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to enjoy its fragrance must be cut off from their people. Wow. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. What are we looking at here? We're looking at the tabernacle in the Old Testament in the context of a worship series on the worship of God. And it's part of the larger thing that Pastor Scott, for the most part, has been doing. If you have one of these bulletin covers... Um, We sometimes call them shelves, and you look on the inside of that first page, you kind of have an outline of what we've been looking at since the first of the year, our mission, our vision, and then our values, those three values. And we've looked at service, love given, and we've looked at relationships, love shared. And now we're looking at worship for uh, a number of Sundays. And all of this, you notice at the bottom of the page, that sentence, the result of the river (laughs) living out our mission, our vision, and our values is a church filled with people who are always being transformed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so we look at worship. And you notice we're not looking at worship only on Sundays. We're we're looking at worship as it takes place every day of our lives. We have an opportunity to worship God in all that we do. And we look at the tabernacle in getting some understanding of that. What's that about? Will that do us any good? I was reminded about some of that. Um, Just, uh, I was reading the latest banner, and there are copies that are still laying there free for the taking. Uh, There's an article in there about the Old Testament and the kind of God we get an impression of in the Old Testament. And the author of the, the article was making a case for reading the Old Testament. Sometimes we're inclined to just move to the Old Testament, the Uh, to the New Testament. The Old Testament is for Old Testament people. It's for the Jewish people. The New Testament is for us. It's for uh, us to learn about Jesus. It's to, to learn about salvation. And she says, if you just skip the Old Testament and go right to the New Testament, it's like jumping into a novel about two thirds of the way through it. There's something to that. The Old Testament helps us understand, helps us, gives us a 
a great idea of why Jesus had to come and who he was and how we worship him. And the Old Testament tabernacle can help us understand that. Now, here's the question then. How do our hearts need to be tuned? And I'm talking not only about the people of the Old Testament, but the people of the New Testament. How do hearts need to be tuned as we worship God? And the answer really has three parts. And for the Old Testament people of Israel, those three parts have to do with getting Egypt out of Israel. It is sometimes said that God got the Israelites out of Egypt and then he had to work at getting Egypt out of the Israelites. And that's what this is about. At least this is part of the picture, the part of the picture that we're looking at this morning. One of them has to do with a sense of community, of being community, with a sense of dependency or dependence on God. The Israelites in the Old Testament in Egypt were slaves. It was kind of an individualistic sort of thing. They had lost sight of the fact that they were God's people, that they were a community, that they were dependent on God. And you see some of this come out even as they're out of Egypt and going into the wilderness and there were these times when they wondered whether, where their next drink of water was going to come from, where their next bit of food was going to come from. And they would say again and again to Moses, Oh, that you had left us in Egypt with the flesh pots that were available to us there. What a great place that was. What a wonderful place. Uh, the Egyptians took care of us. And the thing that they needed to get tuned up was a heart that understood that they were a community that was dependent on God. Another part of that answer has to do with understanding where the glory was, was understanding the God of glory. Um, again, in Egypt, those Israelites could just look around and see these magnificent pyramids that had been built and statues and the Sphinx and all of that and the Pharaoh that was so powerful and so rich and that demanded all of the glory because look at what he did and look at how powerful he is and look at his army and the Israelites and we need to understand that God gets the glory. That's also what we need to get tuned up to do, to give God the glory. Sometimes we even get the whole business of patriotism mixed in there. Sometimes we get the whole business of capitalism mixed in there. Sometimes we become quite very dependent on the power of our military and the way we can move around in the world and shape the world. And we have to understand that all of that is very secondary to God and his power and his glory. And just as we are also called not to be dependent on the work that we do or on the largesse of government or on the kinds of things that we can sometimes come to depend on, but on God, and that we are a community that's doing this. 
together. The third one has to do with the sense of power of prayer. The power of prayer. God is communicating from Mount Sinai to the people of Israel. God is revealing himself. God has made himself known. God is the one who has delivered them. God has opened the sea. God sent the plagues. And for the Israelites, there needed to be a sense of, and we pray to and communicate with this God who is communicating with us. That's the kind of tuning their and our hearts need to have. And in the Old Testament, God provided a tabernacle, this movable tent. Now, I asked Terry if she could uh, just get us a, a couple of pictures that would give us a sense of what this might have looked like. I think there are places in the United States you could go to and see a, a life-sized replica of a tabernacle like this. I think there's one in Florida. I see there's one maybe in Indiana. And the tabernacle looked something like this. There was this large courtyard that was fenced off with curtains. And inside that courtyard, there were these two large pieces of, I'm going to call them furniture. There was this big altar of burnt offering that um, you see there closest to me. And that's where the priests would sacrifice and um, the, the, the sacrifices of sheep and animals. And then there was a little uh, a ways away from that, something called the laver, uh, the bronze laver. That's like the wash basin for the priests. And then you see what's the actual tabernacle. It's kind of cut open. But that's the tabernacle's about 15 feet wide, 45 feet long, 15 feet high, and divided into two parts. And the first part, the smallest part, is called the Holy of Holies, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat and the angels on it, that's where it was. It was the place where nobody could go into except the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. This was where God's presence, this is where God tabernacled with his people in that 15 by 15 by 15 foot square space. And then in front of that... The larger space was the place where the priests would go into on a regular basis, and that's where these three pieces of furniture that we want to just focus on a little bit more are. Uh, there, as the priest entered into it, there on the left would be a, a candelabra. I'm, I'm misspeaking. It's not candelabra. They weren't wax candles. Uh, the golden lampstand. Right across from it was the table of showbread or the table of the presence of the bread of presence, God's presence. And then right in front of that heavy drape that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was this altar of incense. Those three pieces of furniture had a very important place. Let me just, Terry, if you could just take us to the next piece. And I don't know whether these are good replicas or not, but it's the three in the center. And I don't know if you can read this show bread table and the golden lampstand and the altar of incense. And then you've also got the brazen laver uh, on the bottom there and this big thing over to the right, the altar of burnt offerings. And then on the top, what Pastor Scott preached about last week, the alt, the Ark of the Covenant. And you notice in, in, in many of those pieces of furniture, there were these rings 
uh, that were built onto them and that would hold the poles that when it was time to move, the priests could just lift the pieces of furniture up and just walk away with him to the next encampment. Okay, let's look at each of those little pieces of furniture, those three pieces of furniture for a moment. They're in the holy place. Okay, the next slide. They're in the holy place, which one commentator calls it the royal guest chamber. It's the place where they approach, and only the priests could do that. The people were kind of bystanders. They had to stay outside of this, but the priests, Aaron and his family and others specially called, would go into this place, which was the place where you came as close to the presence of God as possible. And so we talk about the table. It's not a large table. It's called the table of showbread, the table of the presence of God. And on that table, which um, was gold-plated, were, were, were some vessels, were some plates and, and, and a, a pitcher or two. But on that table were these 12 pieces of bread, flat bread, unleavened bread, and, and in piles of two, six here, six here, which pointed to the 12 tribes of Israel, which pointed to community, which pointed to God's provision, which pointed to God's presence. And once a week, on the Sabbath day, the high priest would change those out. And he was invited with his family to eat the week old bread that was being changed. I don't know what that tasted like. Uh, unleavened bread, uh, does that last a week in, in the desert, in the heat? I, uh, I know how hot it can get in a little tent that I put up for my grandkids sometimes when we're in the backyard and I've got this little camping tent and I put that up and, and we try to go in that for a little while just kind of as uh, exercise and uh, they quickly want to leave that because it's hot, especially this past week, and they want to get back into the air-conditioned house. I don't know what the temperature was in that tabernacle, in that room, but that's the instructions that we read about. That bread that represented the provision of God, that represented community, was to be, um, that bread was to be changed out once a week. The lampstand, not gold-plated, made of pure gold, hammered out, 75 pounds of it. Now, I don't know how much gold that is. My impression is gold is very, very heavy, and 75 pounds might not be all that much, but that's what this uh, candelabra, this menorah, this lampstand was made of. Beautifully, like an almond branches. One like this, and then three off of that, seven altogether, the number of perfection. The priest was to go in there twice a day, and sort of tend to the little lamps to make sure that he put oil in when needed that was received as offerings from God's people. Once in the morning and then once at night, you have to imagine that this room is pretty dark. There are no curtains that let in much light. And this was the light for that room. This candelabra, this lampstand, 
represented the light and the glory of God. Even pointed to something powerful that all of Israel could see every day. There was this pillar of cloud by day that was right over that tabernacle and it turned into a pillar of fire by night. For the Israelites, they were never in the darkness. There was always light. It just pointed to God's glory and God's might and God's leading. When that pillar of fire moved or that pillar of cloud moved, it was time the Israelites knew to move, to pack up to pack up their own tents, to pack up the tabernacle, to walk with those pieces of furniture to the next place where that cloud or pillar of fire stopped. And then there was the table. There there was the uh, prayers, the altar of incense. Little altar, little square thing, maybe a yard, um, three feet high. And every morning and every night, the priest was to take specially made incense that, were ne- that was never to be used privately, never to be used in their own homes, because if you did, you would be cut off from the people of God. But it was specially made to be put on that altar, to be an incense, to be an aroma, to represent the prayers of God's people, their response to God and his conversation with them. That's how the Israelites, Psalm 41, before I just leave that, Psalm 41, verse 2, just sort of describes that. Let me just read this. Psalm 41, 141, two psalms after the one Beth read from this morning. May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. That's how the Israelites thought of it. And that's how they described it. And all of this had to do with working the rhythm of worship for God's people in the Old Testament. Helping them see God. Helping them understand that there was this regular rhythm and the tuning of their hearts to understanding who God was. And it also speaks to us. Because God is tuning us. Our hearts. God is creating a rhythm for us. Now it's different for us. This is big because Jesus Christ comes and John 1 says, tabernacled among us. In the book of Hebrews, you get to chapter 9. In the Old Testament, there's chapter after chapter, even book after book, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that all in some way just reference the tabernacle and talk about the people and how they're to be dressed who, who serve there. And in Hebrews chapter 9, first 10 verses sort of describe it, summarize it, dispense with it. Because the idea is that Jesus Christ has fulfilled all of what that points to. And you see that so vividly, Pastor Scott mentioned this last week, when Jesus died on the cross, what happened was there was an earthquake and there was the tearing in two from top to bottom of this heavy curtain that divided the most holy place from the holy place. And it was just pointing to the fact that we now have direct access to a God who died for us in the person of Jesus Christ. That we don't need intermediaries. We don't need priests doing this for us. That Jesus Christ comes 
And he says, I am the bread of life. When you read that in John, you see it's in the context of, of right after he has fed the 5,000 people, men besides women and children, that, that they keep following him and they keep expecting, Jesus, you're going to supply our meals for us these days. We see what you can do. And Jesus at some point says, um, I am the bread of life, but you need to look at it in a different way than what you're thinking right now. Here's, here's the, the quote from John 6. It's 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. It has to do with what Jesus has come to do in terms of our salvation, in terms of caring for us. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. John 1, verse 9. That's what he's doing. The true light that gives light to every man is coming into the world, it says there. And then you go to John 8, where Jesus once again Tells, uh, talks in the context of, of, is he really the one we're looking for? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's who he is. That's who he claims to be. And then John 17, when you think about prayer, what we hear is Jesus praying for us. He prays for himself there. He prays for his disciples. And then, it, and then we read, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. <sighs> Take a deep breath. Because we are tuned up. What do I mean by that? And I just need to sit on this a little bit. You can put your paper away if you want to, but uh, we're not quite done yet. What does it mean? Well, in terms of the bread of life, what we're talking about there, at least in part, is what Jesus did just before he was arrested. He took bread and he said to his disciples, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he took the cup. This is my blood, which is shed for you. What we are called to and what keeps tuning us up is doing things like celebrating the Lord's Supper, reminding ourselves of what he did and what he continues to do in us. And we don't do that individually we do that communally, understanding that God works with us as a body of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's something that we need to keep grabbing onto, even as we gather for worship communally. Last week, Ruth and I were not here, but we watched the service on a laptop computer in a motel room. It's kind of interesting. Ruth and I didn't have to get out of our whatever we were wearing in that bed. We uh, just kind of listened and felt free to kind of just uh, 
either tune in or not tune in, it felt very different and somewhat isolated from you when we did that. Communal worship service. Don't neglect the gathering of God's people is what comes to us in the scripture. But then in terms of light, and you just think about Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But then he also says something about us. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You and I are called to be light and to reflect the light that is Jesus. And then prayer. Revelation chapter 5, just want to read a couple of verses from there, gives us a beautiful picture of what John sees in one of his visions. What he sees are the 24 elders, and they were holding, this is verse 8, they were holding golden bowls, bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Or this is John, you know, Revelation chapter 8. Um, another angel who had a golden scepter came and stood at the altar, was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. That's how we should picture the prayers that we offer. Prayers which demonstrate dependence on God. Prayers which remind us whose we are and whom we serve. Now, this can come out in a variety of ways as our hearts are tuned. One of the ways is what we heard about from Tim and Courtney. Their hearts were tuned by God in such a way that God called them to go with OM to Ireland. And God is making provision for that. Eric and Elizabeth Schenkel, God tuned their hearts. God placed a calling on them in such a way that they, for I don't know how long, but have been working with Campus Crusade and just working at this whole Jesus film project. The river has a rich history of that. There's a lot of us that can point to family members or those who've been part of the river who've, whose hearts have been tuned in that direction to go out. There are others who come together to pray for them every week, and that's how God tunes them. There are others who write letters or emails, and that's how God has tuned their hearts there are others for whom it looks altogether differently. There are others who've just seen what God has for them maybe just across the Mexican border. Yesterday, the Mexican Christian Children's Aid folks celebrated 50 years of ministry in the fellowship hall. I, I talked to Larry Feenstra who's the chairman of their board these days. 
And Larry says, it's just a, a wonderful group to work with because these guys just see what needs to be done and do it. They hear God's call. They spend the time. For others, it's, well, looking at what God is doing locally, seeing the needs right in our community, trying to understand how God may be calling them to respond to that. For others, it's how God can best help them teach. The school year is winding down. Sometimes it's a tough time to just finish well in that regard. Others are home already. Jared, you're home, I guess, huh? After finishing a, a year away at college. And for others, it, has, it may have to do with just looking at, at habits that are tugging at them, that are pulling them away from God and saying, Holy Spirit, help me address that and do something about that so that I can live for you more fully, more freely. How does God tune your heart? There's a song we're going to be singing. This is the cue, Beth. There's a song that we're going to be singing that is our prayer at the end of the message. From the Hillsong folks down in Australia, they do good work down there. It is Australia, right? Hillsong, Australia? Okay, it's from Passion. Okay. It's a song which is a prayer. And it's a song which kind of bottom lines it. Because it keeps asking this question, what can I say, what can I do, but offer this heart completely to you?